Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... Hey, it's Karen Rands with the Compassionate Capitalist podcast, video cast as well, because it's also available on YouTube, uh, my channel, Karen Rands, and also um, on, the, on all the different places that you listen to podcasts. So the topic today of the Compassionate Capitalist podcast show is using general solicitation or the various ways to raise money from the crowd to raise the capital for your business. And for people like myself that are deep in the industry, we take it for granted that people know this. Even though crowdfunding has been around for over 20 years in a rewards-based method, but since 2012, and really up until about, to, to, until about 2015, for all of the, the programs to be available, so the last five years, Entrepreneurs have been able to raise money from, in, from people out in the general population. But they don't know that they can. Georgia was one of the first states to do interest state, which means you can invest in entrepreneurs. If you live in that state, you can invest in entrepreneurs in that state, and they can general solicit for that before the Jobs Act was even passed. Kansas and Georgia did it. But you could probably count on two hands how many companies have successfully raised capital in Georgia under this rules. It's it's not a lot. It's not, I mean, they might be doing it kind of off the, you know, not broadcasting that they're doing it. And I don't even know if a lot of people are tracking it or how they track it necessarily. But the Crowdfunding Association of Georgia has been for a while now saying not a lot. There's been some stuff done for real estate, but <clears throat> not really when it comes to entrepreneurs. So here's the thing, when you're, and I'm working on my second book, here's my first book, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing. It was um, written in response to the Jobs Act. We're taking, if you watch the first video, or listen to the prior podcast about what is an angel investor, you, you heard me talk about this, that, you know, up until 2012, angel investing was something that was very, very tightly coupled. It was a small, yeah, it was, there was, you know, networks or membership groups of angel investors that would come together for private meetings. Entrepreneurs would be, have gone through a screening process, would <clears throat> uh, uh, apply to present to their group. They would get, after they'd been screened in a couple of committees, they would get approved. And then those investors would <clears throat> take a look at their investments. They would discuss it afterwards and decide if they were going to move forward with due diligence with that company and then proceed on. Okay, that was that was kind of the general process, and then um, they realized with in 2012, in response to the Great Recession, that the thing that had been the biggest factor that had limited entrepreneurs' ability to raise capital was this this bar, this ban, this prohibition of generally general soliciting to the public which as I talked about in the last podcast video thing was, you know, because it was designed that way to be able to 
be a, um, it was designed that way to, buy, to be a private wealth creation strategy for the wealthiest people. And so if we, when we realize that not only were entrepreneurs having a hard time getting access to capital from investors, because investors were also sitting on the sidelines, but primarily from banks, it's like, let's, let's make it, let them reach out to other people outside of these groups. Uh, because, you know, we're in a digital age. Why not? Why not find investors these other ways? And they discovered that in investors on the other, other side of that, people that invested in the stock market, people that had invested in 401ks, had invested in the stock market, in, in real estate markets, all these people had lost a huge chunk of their wealth that was going to be their nest egg for retirement. And it was it dropped drastically. And, and even now it's taken a decade for it to come back. And with the way our economy is going right now, we're not sure we even have all those discoveries. The thing about investing in an entrepreneur is that they may struggle, but you, you, you can pick and choose how you invest and how that money gets used to amplify their business based on your own risk profile goes so much further versus just buying in stock in a company that, that you're buying and selling from somebody else. The, the company doesn't actually benefit from you buying their stock or selling their stock. Um, so they benefit, they benefit from the value of their stock, but not the transactions of selling the stock. So, <clears throat> except for when, when you're private, when you're private. So the jobs act, they said, you know, let's put, let's, let's remove these limitations. Let's look at what our current laws are. Let's see how we can change those laws so that we can, and, and we need to be put new laws in. And they saw that. And I use this example the first time around in the first segment, but I'll briefly cover it here. And I encourage you to go listen to that. Is the uh, is these things that we take for granted now? The innovation that came to market with traditional crowdfunding, reward-based crowdfunding, from the Kickstarters and Indiegogos and whatnot. Those things were brought to market because people wanted that innovation, were willing to pay for it before it got given to them, before it was in the market on the retail shelf. And so they would pay it ahead of time. And they would sometimes pay a premium. So they weren't really, they were just truly, you know, innovation fanatics. But none of those people, those hundreds of thousands of tens of thousands, whatever the number is, people benefited from when those companies reached a point that they got venture capital, got bought, went public, whatever. They didn't benefit from any of that. So that was a way that they could help these, these investors out there of all income levels be able to participate in the American dream of entrepreneurism without being the entrepreneur. And if you got somebody that it's hard to be an entrepreneur, and if you got somebody that is willing to put all of their, their blood, sweat, and tears and passion into getting a company going and growing, then you too can ride that coattail by giving them some of your money and sharing that risk with a whole bunch of other people that put money into that company. Okay. That's kind of how that works. You, you move that train down the tracks. So when it comes to crowdfunding or generating investment capital from the crowd, what does that look like? So there's reward-based crowdfunding still exists. There's still hundreds of platforms out there. The big ones that everybody knows, they always kind of use it as the Kleenex name of crowdfunding is, is uh, Indiegogo and Kickstarter, right? Um, I think Indiegogo went off and did a, a 
Reg CF one. So Reg CF, which was the new regulation that the Jobs Act came out, allows people to raise capital up to a million dollars a year from accredited and unaccredited investors. That means the people that are making over $250,000 a year, whereas in a million dollars in assets, not their house, plus their, um, their primary residence, plus, or combined income of $350,000 a year. So those folks, those folks can invest. They can invest an unlimited amount. Um, the ones that are not accredited can, can invest uh, based on their income level. They have to disclose that, I think. But they, uh, up to $2,000 in a company or $10,000 a year. Okay, and so that's Reg CF. Because it is the ones that they think are potentially the greatest risk for fraud, because it's a true, a true online portal, they, uh, those portals are regulated by FINRA, which is the quasi-government arm of the SEC that regulates all the broker-dealers. So in essence, for a portal to be able to be a, a licensed portal for doing the um, for doing Reg CF, they have to um, go through a rigorous review process and they have to have processes in place that are supposed to mitigate the risk of fraud because the company does intend to come out with whatever they're offering their product. They do have the mechanisms to do that. They do have, they do a due diligence review of those companies. Uh, some of them will, uh, most of them don't charge for that. They do charge for the back end. And part of Reg CF is that you have to raise all your money before you can get any of your money. Okay, whatever you say you're gonna raise. If you're raising that million dollars, you have to get a million dollars to get it. Um, a lot of times people will say, you know what? I'm gonna go out and say I'm raising $250,000 because I'm pretty certain I can get that. And at least if I get that, I can go do these other things and then try to oversell it and raise half a million dollars. Now, the, most of the Reg CF portals frown on that because they really only want you to raise about 10% more of it. It's just, it's sort of this, this weird sort of, if they're that, that's why the pre-planning for Reg CF is so, or any, any of these kind of um, programs, particularly Reg CF though, anything that you're on a portal like that, whether it's reward-based or equity-based on Reg CF, you have to, get really, really, really good pre-plans. And they're not, it's not cheap. It's really just as expensive to raise money on a Reg CF platform as it is to go around to angel groups all over and pitches all over and, and raise the money. It, it, it probably as expensive, if not more. The difference is that you have another audience, you have a broader audience, and if you do it right, you know. So that's the Reg CF. Um, then they came out because, like I said, Georgia had started this. So, and all states have it now, this interstate exemption. And so, because where that derives from, why they call it that is because Reg D is a federal law. So what it did was exempt you if you were doing intrastate. Because technically, if you were driving down the road, that's a federal highway, on your way, you know what I mean? There was like all these really splitting hair kind of things. I was in a meeting when they first came out with this stuff and the former head of the SEC was up on stage and was taking Q&A and I asked him. And I was texting at the time with the person in a lawyer here in Georgia that had launched a interstate portal that it's now defunct. 
but he was, they were law and he was a lawyer. He was a securities attorney. And this guy was up on stage and I was asking him questions like this, you know, asking him questions while I was texting this other guy. And the reason why it was, would have been considered, he would said what Georgia had done was illegal because, you know, if you put it up on a billboard, if you use your mail to solicit, if you use your, your uh, internet, internet for the most part is a federal, you know, service. Okay. It's not provided by the state, you know, so it's, uh, and so then you would be violating it because you would be using a federal means to communicate your general solicitation, real splitting of heads there, <laughs> hairs there, I tell you. And it was like, it was crazy ludicrous. They were doing it, but it didn't take, take the SEC long. I think before they even came out with the reg CF rules, they had fixed interstate. Okay. And so at the time, because they knew there was like a big problem with the states because they were all, had already encountered it with Reg A+. So the first one that came out was Reg A+, which was the type three, I think, type two. doesn't really matter. Nobody recalls them. They, they came out with type two, type three, types, type one, type two, type three of how they were going to do it. I should have pulled out my notes. I could open my book. There's a whole regulatory section in my book that talks about all of this stuff and how, it, how the history of angel investing came to pass. But Reg A plus said the big, big thing there was you could raise up to $15 million. You could do it from an accredited and unaccredited and you could general solicit without filing with the blue state laws. So one of the things that's part of, of the old Reg D filings that you had to file with the state to let them know you were raising capital. And if you were doing something on a national basis, like Reg A had been out there, mostly banks and stuff had used it but you could test the waters for six months, meaning you could start asking. So broker dealers basically would have access to this offering document, would start testing the waters in their communities to see who would want to invest in this. And then they would turn around and file in the States because it's expensive to file in the States. It could be anywhere from a hundred to $500 to file in the States. Might even be more. And so it could get very expensive if you were going to file in all the states, you know, not counting all the other legal fees. This is just a filing fee. And so, and every state has nuances of it, right? And what they would expect. So there's legal lawyer fees that go along with it. And so a lot of people didn't use Reg A. So they, but it was easiest for the SEC to modify Reg A. So they made Reg A plus, which gave this thing and exempted you from the blue state laws. So now the states all of a sudden didn't have any oversight or any, any they couldn't look and see who was raising capital in their state. <clears throat> and they had interest state that they were doing. So they were kind of like taking it back from feder the feds, right? So the SEC said, all right, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna modify Reg D504, which at that time allows you to raise up to $5 million. Most states will only allow you to raise up to a million dollars. So they allowed them to raise up to $5 million and you can have a mix of accredited and unaccredited based on the rules that were put in place for Reg CF. Okay. So, cause that was where they were looking at, it's kind of started on Reg A plus. And that basically meant that the, that rule that if you make, if you're, if you're not accredited, then you're limited on how much you can put in a single deal and how much you can invest in private companies over the course of the year. Okay. So it's 10 grand total and two grand in a given company, which I think is smart. If, if, that, if you're making under $200,000 a year, that's really probably the, the, the most that you should be putting in. Assuming you got lots of liquidity, that is the most that you should be putting in 
to these kind of companies, quite frankly. That is, that's a true thing. And if you, if you listen to the last podcast where I talked about the wealth creation, AKA Jason Kalkanis and his, uh, um, if I knew what I knew now, if I knew then what I knew now, this is how I would have made my first few hundred thousand dollars in five years. That's not what he said, but you have to go listen to that podcast to hear how I, how I do the math on that. <clears throat> so it's basically putting money into Reg CF companies every month for five years. And so, so with that, um, so that's how Interstate came to happen. So it's 5 million with this, right? So now you got three of them, Reg A, Reg CF, Interstate, which is the new 504. And then you have Reg D, 506, B, and C. So those are the ones that have been around for a long time. And most people, most entrepreneurs use the raise capital. It's the way they most often raise the raise with angel groups. So 506B, it's unlimited amount of money. 506B is the same old that it's always been. Nothing's changed. Investors sign an investor questionnaire and they, um, they, they, they certify on their own signature, just their signature, that they are an accredited investor. Nobody checks. They pledged it, so they must be. <clears throat> Under 506C, then what has to happen is that the investor has to prove, or the entrepreneur has to get evidence to prove that that investor is an accredited investor. And that is done in one of three ways. They file, they file a, ba a, uh, a balance sheet. They file a disclosure of their assets and liabilities. That's the biggest point of heartburn for all investors. They don't do it. They don't like to do it. And that's the one that they all hung on to when this, they first came out and, and got a bad rap for um, general solicitation or you know, raising capital that way. But it's really not that big a deal because you don't have to do it that way. The second way that you can do it is by getting a licensed professional to sign off for you. Your CPA is licensed. Your lawyer is licensed. Your financial wealth manager is licensed. Any one of those can put on a letterhead that you are an accredited investor and that counts. The third way is just like when you're going to get a loan for your house or you refinance your house or something like that and you provide two years of income tax statement. So if you qualify based off of a W-2 on an income tax statement, then you can pass the 506C muster. And then, you know, companies and typically people will do $50,000. So that's the baseline of what is crowdfunding. And those are the, the four ways, well, actually five ways to raise money from a crowd. One, reward-based, four, equity-based. So how do you use those in application in reality? How do you go about using them? When should you use them? That's really what I'm working on. My next book, it's called Scale, you know, the inside secrets to getting the capital you need to grow your business, plus a, a whole lot more talking about the operational side of scaling and raising the capital. I'm just going to give it to you in a nutshell because <laughs> it's taken me a while to write this book. It's going to be as, as impactful and and information filled as this book is, it'll just be geared towards the entrepreneurs that are raising that capital. But I also want investors to listen because if you are an investor, and I talk about it in this book, if you are an investor that, you know, you, you really don't have a risk tolerance for a startup, that scenario I played out for Reg CF, really not your cup of tea. And you got plenty of money. You got a million dollars in a 401k because you're, you've been working for a corporation for a long time and you're making $500,000 a year as an executive. 
you can afford to be an angel investor in a company that you could put twenty-five dollars or $50,000 in. But I would look for interstate examples of companies that you admire. You admire the business that they have. You admire the stuff that they are doing. You talk to your local banks and the people that are making SBA loans for businesses that are expanding and buying equipment and stuff like that and say, hey, do you know, when you hear of opportunities like this, you know, a company that wants to scale, they're getting a bank loan to be able to scale this or opening up a second plant, they're opening up a second facility, but they need capital to grow. You're in your chamber, you go to your chamber, you say, let's support our local businesses. Here's this great restaurant that we like, or this great new entertainment concept for kids, or this great new this, that, or the other. Let's go and pull our money as a chamber and back that company to be able to go and create a franchise or be able to go company-wide and, and you know, start up another facility 100 miles down the road for that does like that. Uh, uh, urgent care. We know we need all kinds of Alzheimer's. You know, we need all kinds of, of special care for an aging population. There's all kinds of opportunities out there, things that you can think about that you know in your community that you could be the silent backers that invest in that from an intrastate standpoint and keep jobs in your community, grow the jobs in your community, grow the wealth within your community by pooling your money together under intrastate, being a silent partner in a business with an owner operator that brought, came to the table with 10% perhaps, stuff like that. There's, there's so many ways that you can play. So you also as a company, you, and you don't want to deal with startups, but you as a company as one of those kind of companies, look at that. That is something that you can do. You could start at a local level through intrastate. Check with your state, your secretary of state on what do you have to do to file to make sure that you're doing it all very legit. Look and see if there's any tax credits in your state. Almost every state has some form of a tax credit that investors that invest in that because they've got earned income tax, right? They've got a W-2 that they're getting taxed on or they've got income coming from other investments they're getting taxed on. If they, get, if they invest in you, they get a tax credit on that investment against their earned income. Okay, pause for that. So find out, you as an entrepreneur, need to find out if there, what are the tax credits that are going on in your state? What are the specific rules for your state? And then put that together in a package and start going to your chamber. Start meeting with the president of your chamber and say, hey, I want to come together as an economic development for this project. You go, to, go to your rotary. You're not going to miss it, you know, and just start to find out. Go to the bank. The trust managers in banks know the people that are in a position to do these kind of things because they manage their trusts, right? So those people would know who are candidates to be the ones that would invest locally in a business that would create more jobs. And those kind of businesses to yo investor, yo entrepreneur are already stable. They've already got income. There are also the businesses out there. Another way, if you are an investor listening to this right now, or you are one of these entrepreneurs that I'm about to talk about, out of all these angel, these very private groups that I talked about that make these, and when I use that example in the last one where I talked about the 10 companies and those, there's three that fail outright, there's three that just do a little bit, 
kind of get your money back and three that do just okay and you get like double your money back or triple you know but not the big one well part of the reason why those six companies in the middle don't do as well they had a good business model they had a good idea they had a good strategy they had a good team they didn't get the next round of money they needed to truly scale because even though there's a lot of money in venture capital it doesn't go into as much as many companies as a 